0: We'll be welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today, some more on Chilean's rejection of a proposed new constitution in early September, and a look at the political harm done by a structure of feeling organized around grievance. Before that, a few words on poverty, specifically the childhood kind. A few days ago, the New York Times published an article by Jason DeParle, a veteran reporter in the Poverty Beat, on the sharp decline in one index of childhood poverty, the so-called supplemental measure. DeParle's article drew on the work of a research group called Child Trends. Between 1993 and 2019, the supplemental measure fell for a rate of 28% to 11%, a decline of 17 points. The Child Trends analysis stopped in 2019 because of all the distortions introduced by COVID in 2020. The Census Bureau's official poverty measure shows a much smaller decline, from 23 to 14%, a decline of just 9 points. The reason for the difference is that the official measure doesn't include government aid programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit, the EITC, or food stamps and housing subsidies. The Bureau's supplemental measure is an experimental effort to account for those. DeParle's story in the Child Trends Report is based on drew a sharp rebuke from Matt Brunig, who wrote in his People's Policy Project site that the whole project was flawed from the start. Dishonest was one word he used. Specifically, much of the decline reported by the supplemental measure— and amplified by Child Trends and Deparle was the result of increases in the EITC, both in its rising level and broader eligibility. The Census Bureau's estimates of how the credit affected family incomes are probably somewhat higher than reality, a fact that both the Census Bureau and Child Trends acknowledge. Child Trends also noted that there are other forms of aid that are probably underestimated, offsetting the error in the EITC. What's the truth? Part of the problem is the odd way the U.S. measures Poverty. The official poverty line was set rather arbitrarily in the early 1960s and has simply been adjusted for inflation ever since. Conceptually, a poverty line income today has the same real purchasing power now as it did six decades ago, even though average incomes have risen dramatically. The supplemental poverty measure reflects this concept as well. But most poverty researchers define poverty relative to average income. A common metric is an income less than half the national median. By that standard, 25% of American children were poor in 1993, and 20% were in 2019. By contrast, about 8% of Norwegian children were poor in 2019, well under half the American rate. A few takeaways. Yes, the child poverty rate declined, but not by as much as child trends and Jason DePaul say. And Bruning's criticisms aside, the EITC and other government programs do help a lot, though they could be even more generous. But there's another issue. A large wedge between what bourgeois thought sees as the deserving and undeserving poor, that is, those who work for pay and those who don't. To be fair to the Child Trends report, they did point this out quite prominently, though in wonkier language than mine. Most aid for those unable to work has been cut since the Clinton-era welfare reform, while assistance to the working poor has been expanded. This reflects Clinton-Democrat thinking about rewarding work and punishing what they saw as idleness, showing a callous indifference to the inability of many to work. We can do a lot better, but that's not where American politics are right now. Okay, Chile. Last week I interviewed Antonia Atria, an activist with Revolución Democrática, Democratic Revolution, on that country's rejection of a proposed new constitution. This week we're revisiting that referendum with a fellow member of Democratic Revolution, Mario Pino. Repeating some of my background comments from last week, following a series of mass protests in 2019, the country's parliamentary parties agreed that it was time to rewrite the Constitution, a holdover from the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. Delegates to a constitutional convention were elected in May 2021, and they began work the following July. Their work was completed a year later and put to a vote on September 4th. It was defeated by a crushing 6238 margin. The left in Chile and abroad greeted the document with enthusiasm for inclusion of social rights like education and health and for its enshrinement of gender and ethnic rights as well. When the document was finished, right-wing and establishment interests sprung into action, spreading massive amounts of fake news about it. The fear campaign worked. But as we'll hear from Mario Pino, that wasn't the only reason for the failure. I've cut this interview down some for time. In the full version, Pino repeated several of the points Autria made, like the introduction of mandatory voting, which brought in a lot of detached people who were bombarded with mass payloads of fake news. Also, many of the delegates were new to politics, and many were, in Pino's description, maximalists, with no social base. One delegate faked cancer to build his brand, and the exposure of that fraud did a lot of damage to the Constitutional Convention's credibility. So the fake news creators did have some raw material to work with. But the bogus cancer patient was trying to push for a public health insurance system for the country, something it badly needs, and the Constitution drafts defeat will make that task much harder. It will also make it harder for Gabriel Boric, the young leftist who became president last year, to do his work. Mario Pino works at the University of Chicago as a researcher and program coordinator. Mario Pino. There's a belief in a lot of progressive circles in the U.S., and I don't know if this extends to Chile, but that there's a belief that people who don't vote are a potential audience for the left, that they're disengaged from the political process, but we could then mobilize the non-voters if we had an appealing message. I was never convinced of that, and this result reinforces my doubts. But uh, you know, what, what can we say about these people who were um, forced to vote, who had previously been disengaged? Do we know about their politics and their demographics?
1: That's a really good question, because if you compare the number of votes that Gabriel Boric obtained in the second round in the ballotage, uh, and you compare those votes with the yes side of the referendum now, it's almost the same portion of votes. So mainly a generation that wasn't involved in politics, people around 40 to 55 years old, voted sometimes even for the first time. That generation was born and also raised throughout the military dictatorship. And during the 19th and 2000, they were not really involved in politics. Actually, we have a phrase in Chile is no estoy ni ahí. It's like, I don't care. And I think that generation really don't want important change. They are just like, we like stability. We don't want like uh, important changes or we don't want to have risks in terms of how the country is doing. You have that in one hand, but also at the same time that generation is having a really rough time in Chile in terms of like Chile is a really really uh, expensive country so and um, the wages are not that good so there's like a trade-off uh, of those feelings in on one side you feel like you're abused by the uh, quote-unquote system but in the other hand those people are not involved in politics and I think they don't have even in a, in a clear ideological cleavage between right wing and left wing so I think that's something that we need to discover in the following years, how we can treat those people that were forced to vote this time.
0: There are certainly a series of popular uprisings in Chile that looked very encouraging, that, there was, that this, the population really wanted some kind of significant change in the politics of the country, and yet uh, this is a profoundly conservative result. How do we reconcile that
1: contradiction, just different groups of people? There was also a process in the Constitutional Convention that changed some votes, um, the initial referendum gave the yes side or, or the side that wanted to move forward with its new constitution an 80% of the votes. And there were also certain particularities in, in that moment. Um, at that time, I was working as a legislative director in one of in Ignacio La Torres' office. He's the first senator of the Frente Amplio Coalition. And, and when we were drafting the bill that allowed to have this election of uh, the Constitutional Assembly. And even now, political parties are completely, I don't, I don't know what's the exact word to, to explain this, but they are not legitimized by the, by the people. There was like a poll a couple of weeks ago, and people considered the political parties are not an institution that works really well and they don't trust them.
0: Chile is not alone
1: in that. That seems to be a worldwide phenomenon. Yeah, but in Chile, it's, it's a really extreme phenomenon if you compare with other countries, even in the same region. Politicians at that point agreed in allowing independents to run for this constitutional assembly election. So if you are like an independent, you don't have a clear ideology, you don't have a program, but you gather with other people and you register for like to be um, an alternative in that election, you can run for that election. And and the result was we have a huge portion of independents in the constitutional assembly, around 20 to 25%. And even if they were gathered in some lists, it was really difficult to work and negotiate with them because they didn't have like clear ideas or where they were standing. And also they didn't act as a collective groups. So what happened there is if you mix that with the 80% of the yes side in in the first referendum, I would say that there was a maximalist spirit in the constitutional convention. I myself, I consider a leftist, but If you think that 80% of the population is agreeing with your ideas as a left side of the political spectrum, they started to like do performance the first three months of the constitutional convention. So they have these acts in where they speak to people outside the building that was having the convention. They did like performatic arts, but the core of the discussion was the new constitution just started to be discussed like three or four months after the constitutional convention settled. So I guess at that point, people started to have some distance with the Constitutional Convention, like, what are these guys doing? Why are they doing like all of these like, performatic arts, but they are not working in the text, etc.? So I, I guess that's one thing that was really complex and didn't um, make sense to the people. At the same time that, that this was going on, there was um, something happening with one of these independent conventionals that was called Rodrigo Rojas Bade, he was a person that was in the protest uh, wearing like, I don't know, all of these tubes and stuff that you have when you have cancer or you have a really complex um, disease. He tried to pose himself as uh, the defender of the people who had uh, health issues. Uh, and obviously, he, want, he wanted to initiate like a public universal healthcare care system in Chile. But in the middle of the process, someone revealed that he wasn't sick. He didn't have cancer. And that fact started the process in which the Constitutional Convention didn't make sense to the people. Like, I think a lot of people had faith that these outsiders had like new ways to do things. And once you have a really serious case like this one, like someone who was an activist for people that was sick, and then you realize it was all a scam and a lie, I think even if that was just one case, it affected enormously the, the legitimacy of this Constitutional Convention.
0: What do we know about the demographics of the vote? Are there exit polls or do you have some sense of what kinds of people voted for or against?
1: Younger generation uh, below 34 years old were mostly voting yes. But then this generation that was a generation that wasn't voting uh, between 35 or 40 years old and 55 uh, was a huge question mark for everyone. But a lot of polls said that that generation will vote like uh, in the no side for a far amount of votes and then people um above fifty-five years old was almost at the same uh level. So that was really almost a die. But the huge surprise in this case is like no one expected such a huge difference between the no and the yes side of the referendum. And I think that's the new thing. Um and what about um do we know about income and class? That's a really good question. When Gabriel Boric won in the second round, he made sense to working-class people in some of the more populated areas of Santiago and Valparaíso, which is a region in the coastal side of of the country. And I think probably that was the reason why he won. Now, working-class people didn't vote for the yes side. And then we can talk a little bit about the fake news campaign of the the right side of the political spectrum, but the constitution that the convention proposed wasn't making sense to the working class people, which is really weird because it has a lot of social rights and it was going to start like um, universal healthcare system and, and other things that would really benefit that portion of, of the population. Then the middle class tended to vote more for the yes side than uh, working class people and like the upper class. And obviously the upper class was absolutely uh, voting in the no side and I guess uh, I can tell you a small anecdote, but um, my parents-in-law lives in a really bougie area of Santiago. And in, in those sectors, the yes side didn't have more than three or four percent of the vote. So you can imagine how i agree it was all of the upper class voting in the no side. And in the case of the working class people, not much people had the opportunity to actually read the text and understand what they were voting. Obviously, I think that is not uh, people's fault. I think the campaign of the yes side wasn't that good. But it is impressive how you see in the national television, some interviews that day, people didn't really know what they were voting.
0: This sounds somewhat like politics in the US, where you have certain members of the working class are, tend to be voting conservative, and I don't know, upper middle class or professional class people are voting for, for the Democrats. Is something like that operating in this vote? Th-
1: To some extent, because when when we have the ballotage in the case of Gabriel Boric versus the far right Juan Antonio cast, uh, a lot of working class areas voted for Gabriel Boric. Leftist parties in Chile don't have like an intense or like a territorial distribution of activists that are working on an everyday basis with people. And when you don't have that territorial activism from political parties, it's really difficult to maintain the momentum forward. I would say that just the Communist Party of Chile had that territorial way to be involved in politics. uh, But the new left, uh, and I'm part of that new left, we don't have that for different reasons. In this case, again, a lot of people voted for the no side, and I think there's a mixture between what you're saying, like the working class is voting more conservative, but also the misinformation had a huge impact on this outcome uh, and and finally I think also there's in some small portions of the population but it still persists like a remembrance of the um, unidad popular moment and also the f- the far right is uh, during the campaign spoke a lot about Venezuela and how this uh was gonna uh transform Chile in some sort of like Venezuela or Argentina uh, and I think that had an an impact in people, specifically in working class people. So yeah, I guess that's one of the factors. I'm speaking with the
0: Chilean political analyst Mario Pino. And so
1: what's next? you going to try again? I wanted to say just a couple of things about the, the text itself. One huge mistake of the Abreu side of which I'm part of, I think there wasn't a clear idea on how you can have all of these social rights. And at the same time, know how you're going to finance them because you can have a a really beautiful constitution, but then you can like implement all of those changes. So I think in that realm, the right wing was like pushing and pushing forward just to to present this thing like as a constitution that was not going to be able to be transforming in concrete public policy. And I think that's, I would say that's an important takeaway that, that I'm taking from this discussion.
0: Were there no schemes to finance these uh, programs or had people not thought about it or were there actual plans, but just people weren't paying attention?
1: In this point, I'm, I'm really critical about the, the left side of the Constitutional Convention because they started to discuss a lot of important but accessory things. And just in the last two weeks of the convention, they discussed the political system and some details of the judiciary and other important things. So as they started discussing the accessory things, there wasn't a process of discussion on the big topics. And one of the big topics is, for example, who rules the public budget, just the president, just the government or... Are the senators and deputies allowed to present initiative that has public expenditure? That was an open question up to the end. And at the same time, I think as this was moving so fast the last days of the Constitutional Convention, there was not space and energy to discuss, Okay, this is our constitution, but this is a plan on how we are going to materialize these rights in in concrete public policies. And I think that also had an impact on on the outcome.
0: Well, this is amazing in Chile because you know you had the holdover from the dictatorship of like no welfare state, uh, the the uh, really awful retirement system, the lack of um, publicly funded education or healthcare. You would think that this would be rich area for organizing a uh, a left politics, some kind of socialist or social democratic
1: agenda, but um, it didn't happen. Yeah, I think it didn't happen. So if you are discussing social rights, you can have an interesting campaign on showing people how your everyday lives. Will look like if you approve. I don't know a new healthcare system, a new uh, scheme of pension funds. But I have the feeling that that wasn't the case throughout the the discussion in the constitutional assembly. So there wasn't a clear campaign on how your your mundane everyday life will look like with this new constitution. So when you just are discussing like this abstract enunciation of social rights, but you can't tell people how that's going to affect their everyday life. I think you have a, a huge distance between what was discussed in the convention and everyday life for common people.
0: Have people learned a lesson from this? I mean, is there any uh, serious self-reflection going on?
1: Well, it's complex because a lot of these maximalist groups in the Constitutional Assembly now are blaming people that this was their fault. That's a no-no for me. You can't blame people because they, they didn't understand your, your ideas. It's that your campaign wasn't the best. They're blaming the broad population for the yeah, and especially working class people. We have we oh, have man. a concept. That's that, not that good. Is, that's not good. No, that's not good. And we have this concept that is called facho pobre. In some way, it has a pejorative uh connotations, such as rednecks, maybe. And a, a lot of the people that was elected for the constitutional convention are, are calling like working class people like that for not voting on the yes side of the referendum. And I think that's a huge mistake. And other part of the leftists are trying to have like a more in-depth discussion on what was going on and what happened. And you know, Gabriel Boric government, at so, to some extent, is tied to the constitutional process because a lot of the reforms that he wants to install it, like the limits of those reforms, is the current constitution. So, yeah, we will have in the next week a really complex scenario for for Gabriel Boric government. And now, uh, on your question on how we will follow up this constitutional process. Uh, days before the election, the right-wing parties agreed that if they no won this um, referendum, they will promote a new process. That was in theory, but now yesterday, one of the um, right-wing parties said that they just want to leave this task for the Congress, and they didn't want to have a new uh, election for the Constitutional Convention. So the right-wing parties feel that now they are entitled. As the leftist parties were entitled when they have the 80% of the yes side, Now the right-wing parties are feeling that they are controlling the situation. So they are stopping all of the, like they are voting no to every initiative of Gabriel Boric in the government. They don't want to have a new constitutional assembly. They want a group of experts or the uh, current Congress to build a new constitution. So we will see. These are really rough days. And we have um, second, like students from high school protesting in Santiago. So everything is a little bit unsettled. and, And I think... We will need a couple of weeks to, to know what will really happen in the next days.
0: There was a lot of talk uh, in recent months of a second pink tide across Latin America. Is that uh, that kind of talk wrong or is Chile just an exception?
1: I think there's a tendency just because the far right governments that we have or the right wing governments that we have throughout Latin America didn't do great during the last year. So you have the example of Bolsonaro, you have the example of Colombia and even the, the, the example of Chile. But I think there's also a clash of political projects and generations in the left or pink side of the politics in the region. Because you can group different projects. in one hand, you have Gabriel Boric and Pedro, And I think they are trying not to commit the same mistakes that the left-wing parties committed during the 2000s. But also they have some limitations. So that's one group. Then you have the situation in Argentina, which I think is different. Fernandez is really struggling to keep the the country afloat. So you have that type of situation. And then you have people like AMLO in Mexico, which obviously uh, every time that there's a leader that is moving forward, they left these projects. I'm really happy, but I have several doubts of what is AMLO doing right now. So you need to, to analyze this almost case by case. And I think there's not a unified group of uh, leftists acting throughout the, the Latin American region. But yes, my my, my guess is the right wing parties lose momentum during this period, and and we can hope that in other countries also some leftists will win the elections.
0: What about the the right wing populist Bolsonaro Trump mold? How popular is that across the region? Is Brazil the exception? Uh, certainly, Bolsonaro doesn't look like he's going to get reelected. So, but uh, you know, w- what about that kind of process that goes from political disengagement to uh, the appeal of these right-wing
1: populists? It's gaining momentum, but silently gaining momentum. I was now I'm living in Chicago, but I was in Chile the, the last two weeks, and I was seated in a coffee in the downtown of Santiago, and I was listening to a meeting uh, right next to me in the same coffee shop. From people of the Republican Party of Chile. That's a new party in Chile. It's not the same in the US, but it was founded by Jose Antonio Cast, which has a really tight and close connection with Bolsonaro, with Trump, and with AFD in Germany. So they are organized, they have the same strategies. So, for example, the use of social media during the campaign of the referendum, uh, they're using the same type of strategies that you had uh, with fake news, WhatsApp groups activity on Twitter, you're having the same uh, strategies and obviously they are coordinated. So they are growing at uh, this in Chile. I know that they are also growing in countries like Colombia, Costa Rica. So I don't know how much momentum they have, but they are doing one thing that the new left is not doing. And that's, that is like, they are trying to have roots in working class communities. They have people working in there. They have these territorial settlements of uh, small groups that goes to talk to people in working class areas. And and that's one thing that scares me because they are working really seriously on that. Is that because they're
0: better funded or they're thinking more clearly or what?
1: Obviously, I think that being well-funded helps a lot. Again, in the case of Frente Ampli, we, we found that our political parties that are now in the government in Chile just after the student movement in 2011, and we just have like the public budget for political parties in Chile and, and a little bit of money. But all of our campaigns still have a lot of issues because we don't have money to fund them. But I would say it's more serious than that because they are doing good because they are working with fear. And I think the in some way, the, the feelings that are involved in the right wing now is fear. And the only way in which you can uh, confront them is with hope in the left side. And beyond that, they are dedicating a lot of time to have people in the neighborhoods, like, really rooted in the society. And for some reason that we need to discuss way more profoundly in the new left, we don't have those roots. And especially in Chile, you don't have those roots. As Chile is such an unequal country, a lot of the new leftists come from Bougie families. Obviously, like, if you come from a Bougie family, obviously you can be a in theory, a good politician, but you don't live in a working class neighborhood, you don't have those roots. And yeah, that that will be a huge issue in the following years on how we can confront the, the radical right.
0: Well, it seems to me also that the left, um, I certainly feel this way in the US, I don't know about elsewhere, but we're often too cerebral and we're not really good with uh, using emotion in politics. And the right is very good at that. Um, and you're talking about countering fear with hope, but there's not much passion in left wing politics today. And we've all lost the utopian impulse. There's nothing that really gets people's blood moving about the left wing
1: agenda. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm not completely terrible about what I'm going to say now, but I think, there's, I, I think there's a hint. If you see around the world, the traditional center-left parties, I'm thinking in the Socialist Party, for example, in France, and the Social Democrats in Germany, you can see that once you are in the state and governing for a really long period, obviously there are issues in public policy and there are more centuries that we would like to, but beyond that, you lose that passion and that capacity of provoking certain feelings in the population, and I think that's really important. And with the new left, In some portions of the campaigns, we are able to provoke that. For example, Boric, after the first round uh, in the presidential election in 2021, nobody thought he could win the election. But just doing a campaign that tried to show a, a new country, like you don't need to gather money with your friends and communities to have like healthcare that you can have like a public healthcare system, showing those things and entangle that with this hope I think that's the reason why Boric won in the second round. The idea of hope, the idea that leftist parties are not wanting to uh, provoke war on, or that we are not like these crazy people that want to change everything, but we want to change res- with, with responsibility the more fundamental things among our societies. I think that works. But again, in this constitutional convention campaign, we, we didn't find that. And I think people wasn't involved and wasn't feeling something positive about the outcome.
0: I was Mario Pino, an advisor to the Chilean political party Democratic Revolution, who also works at the University of Chicago. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Laissez-faire from yet another new Stereolab reissue, this of their 1992 EP Lo-Fi, which was re-released on CD but never made it onto the streaming services until now. Next, Grievance. Ariel Angel had a piece recently on the Jewish Currents website, of which she's the editor, on the troubling effects of organizing your politics around Grievance. It focuses specifically on its role in American Jewish politics, but I thought it was more broadly applicable to a left culture as well. Ariel Angel. You opened the piece by talking to reactions to uh, a hostage incident at a reform synagogue in Colleyville, Texas. Could you tell the story uh, and some of the reactions among Jews that you uh, you noticed?
2: This happened around Colleyville, but it's it's not limited to that specific incident. So there was a hostage situation in Texas. Nobody died. The rabbi of the synagogue was able to throw a chair at the attacker, and everybody got out, and the attacker was killed. By law enforcement, but none of the the hostages died, and so I think that's part of the reason in this case also that it wasn't bigger news. I mean, considering how often there are mass shooting events in this country and that don't even make ripples, even when there are casualties. But there was a a real outcry among Jewish people online and generally that that there wasn't an enough of an expression of consideration for Jewish people in the aftermath of that attack both that the coverage was lackluster, that it wasn't on cable news enough, that there was a complaint about it not being on the front page of The Times the next day. It was on the front page of The Times the day after. There was a complaint about not enough non-Jews denouncing anti-Semitism publicly.
0: Which wasn't true, right?
2: Which wasn't true. It was a, a Muslim attacker, and a lot of Muslim organizations in particular, including CARE, public figures like Rashida Tlaib and Linda Sarsour and organizations like Empower Change put out statements right away and against anti-Semitism and and showing solidarity with the victims. And way more than that. I mean, there were a ton of people in public leadership roles, people of color talking about anti-Semitism and expressing concern and care for their Jewish friends and colleagues. But there was a huge outpouring of grievance. I talk in the piece about, particularly in the New York Times, Deborah Lipstadt wrote a, a very melodramatic piece just saying, you know, nobody reached out, who reached out to their Jewish friends. And every time we're in synagogue, we're just looking at the exits and, and this very intense document of of Jewish fear. But even more than Jewish fear, just that the sense that the Jewish fear isn't being recognized. Brett Stevens wrote a very similar piece saying that that Jews were suffering from a kind of Double trauma, one is the trauma of the event and the second is the trauma of nobody caring about that event. So the first section of the article that that we're talking about is really just detailing the response in in uh, in very great detail, both the response from government and from law enforcement and from the kind of nonprofit world and from the media to just detail how thoroughly this event uh, which was disturbing to, to say the least, but also produced no casualties, was acknowledged and covered, uh, and particularly the extent to which people in power responded quickly and handily to this, including doubling the budget for a program for nonprofit security grants, which uh, primarily serves Jewish organizations, synagogues, and the like, to three hundred and sixty million dollars.
0: What do you attribute this reaction to? Huh. <laughs> I mean, we could turn around some psychoanalytic terms. Which uh, there's some kind of fixation, a compulsion to repeat, melancholia. Uh, yeah, can you absolutely. Uh, psychoanalyze yeah. the collectivity, uh, collective response for us.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is largely the subject of the piece. Jews tell a story about themselves. That's a story that, in, in a lot of our liturgy, appears. I mean, we do the Passover Seder every year that talks about how we were slaves in Egypt and most of the Jewish holidays have some element of they tried to kill us and here we are still and which is true which is true I mean it's not my grandparents are Holocaust survivors as I talk about in the piece and by the way like none of this is to minimize the original event which was indeed a a very disturbing anti-Semitic attack but There is something about the tenor of the response that to me speaks to a kind of pleasure in retelling the story and in occupying a certain kind of space, which is the space of the victim. And particularly for Jews, a pleasure in in occupying that space, especially in a situation where there are questions that Jews have been dealing with for the last 10 years, I think, acutely about their ascent into whiteness and into the power structures of the United States, when many of them don't think of themselves in that way or think of themselves as part of an oppressed history. And also because of the way that the changing attitudes in the United States and among the American Jewish community about Israel and the way and the extent to which American Jews identify or don't identify with Zionism and the image of Israelis as oppressors and American Jews as sort of like handmaidens to that uh, story. So I think there was a certain measure of pleasure in sort of occupying the space of the victim sort of unequivocally. And also in saying You know, nobody cares about us in in telling kind of a similar story about our positionality that challenges what many consider to be the story, particularly on the left. This is like actually really worth underlining is that I think among a certain pundit class, certainly, you know, the likes of Barry Weiss and Brett Stevens, the idea is that intersectionality is for everybody except for Jews, that the left is interested in fighting all of the isms, you know, racism, sexism, Uh, Islamophobia, et cetera, but not interested in fighting anti-Semitism because Jews are considered part of a white oppressor class. And this was a moment of being able to unequivocally say we are part of the oppressed and also nobody cares. So it also conveniently holds a little bit of left bashing in there (laughs) as well. I think what I'm trying to point out in this piece the answer for someone like Barry Weiss is identity politics for for Jews only <laughs> in the form of a kind of Zionist identity politics. But I think what I'm trying to say is like that a certain kind of identity politics, particularly that based in an attachment to grievance, that everybody, including Jews, should be wary of that, which I think is Somewhat novel. I don't. I don't think anyone in the Jewish world has talked about it in quite that way. It's sort of like a only for the Jews or or for everyone kind of approach.
0: You say if anti-Semitism is a permanent transhistorical ill, prudian and primordial, as Zach Pushop called it in Vox, why bother with material solutions? That sounds a lot like Afro pessimism. There's some kind of trans-historical racial hierarchy, and it will never, ever, ever change. Which is For anyone who takes politics seriously, it's really hard to uh, get your head around.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I purposely didn't talk about Afro-pessimism in the piece. I also, there are a lot of people have told me since I published the piece, and as I was well aware of, there's a lot of parallels also in in the realm of Asian American politics. I purposely didn't get into the specifics of any of that because- I wanted the Jewish story to speak for itself and to be able to say to other groups, like, you can draw the connections about how this is playing out in your communal politics. But yeah, I mean, I do think that there is something to that. And and just to say, like, I don't begrudge anyone for having Afro-pessimist politics, but I just am not sure that that is a constructive place from which to organize. You could do other things from that place, but it doesn't seem like the best starting point for coalition building or for doing the the work of bringing people along to your vision.
0: You cite uh, Femi Taro, who was on this show a couple of months ago and will be again shortly. He uh, writes that it asks something of trauma that cannot give. It equates the trauma state, which is by nature partial, short sighted, self absorbed, with wisdom. Thereby obviating the need for healing. A pain, he writes, is in fact a poor teacher. Oppression is not prep school. Yeah, could you could you talk about that a bit?
2: I try to bring in some psychoanalytic tools to talk about what's actually going on here. And there is a way that Lynn Cheng, in Melancholy of Race, uh, writes about this. I also cite her work earlier in the piece. There is a way in which, and, and she's citing Freud, Mourning and Melancholia, that one can start to identify so thoroughly with the pain and the loss that they end up incorporating that into the ego and not wanting to let it go. And that is a very, very bad place from which to do politics, it seems to me. I mean, I actually thought a lot about whether to like get into in this piece, how to differentiate what it would look like. I mean, she makes a very strong distinction between grief and grievance. And she says that, that actually grievance is very important in politics. And it's one of the only things that actually moves politics forward on a certain level, but that we're deferring to it too readily and too often. There is this whole universe of things that can actually be solved by grief. And I I was thinking about this in relationship to Colleyville too, like the people who were upset, were upset about experiencing, even from a distance, this outburst of anti-Semitism. They were upset about it not being acknowledged, but it was being acknowledged. So what they were actually upset about is the, is the harm itself. Like the fact that there's this continued anti-Semitism. and instead of taking a moment to sort of think about that and maybe like do some ritual work or some group work or some conversation with other Jews or with other uh, non-Jews that they trust and have that kind of relationship with, there was this immediate recourse to grievance and there is a sense that, that there, we don't get to a kind of transformative place where we're able to, to move to a place that isn't fragmented or fractious unless we do that work of grief. I think that Taiwo takes this to a place that is really useful in, in elite capture, which is to recognize that grievance and that trauma affords a kind of currency in movement spaces and elsewhere particularly in on the left and in academia, if that is the thing that confers authority or wisdom, why would anybody want to give it up? So the piece itself is continually trying to return to the question of if these are our priors, if we really believe that our value, that our identity is wrapped up in pain and trauma, and we don't want to let that go because it's the basis of both who we are and the the basis of our value in these spaces. We are going to see the kinds of things that we continually see in left spaces, which is, you know, the infighting. I hesitate to use the word cancel culture or call out culture because of their connotations. But I think a lot of leftists listening to this will sort of understand the the circumstances that I'm talking about intuitively.
0: I'm speaking with Ariel Angel, editor of Jewish Currents. I was also reminded of this uh, habit on the left of cherishing your marginality as proof of your purity, and a fear of contaminating oneself with coalition or uh, working with larger groups, different groups than what you're familiar with, and really engaging with power. It's uh, there's, there's some kind of totally. I know, it's a narcissistic uh, shield against some perceived threat that uh, really ends up just uh, perpetuating the marginalization and uh, fragmentation.
2: Absolutely. I mean, Sam Adler Bell has written about this a lot, and I I tend to agree. But I I did want to in this piece not focus on sort of like the the love of losing um, <laughs> yeah. on the left, but but really more on the psychological basis for that. Why is it that we want to stay in this position? And I do think that there's something in that that is both personal and collective. A way that we have not prioritized healing in our spaces and not given other outlets for what are very real harms, that actually we've only created avenues to enact and perform grievance about a certain thing, but not given people the opportunity to find healing, both in an inter- and intra-communal sense.
0: Okay, and then you say, what would it take to metabolize these feelings instead of chewing them like a bitter cud? what could healing do for us? (laughs) This is a big question. But what might that healing look like?
2: In terms of the diagnosis, it was really very clear to me, even though, like I said, it was important for me not to talk about the ways that this was playing out in other groups. But I had a sense of, of the fact that it was playing out that way. I think that in this case, this is one circumstance where the Jewish community is really specific, because the Jewish community something I was thinking about when I was writing this was the fact that, you know, if I meet a Jewish kid that went to summer camp in Melbourne, Australia, we probably know like a lot of the same songs. And like, we may even have some people in common, and we have the same vocabulary and all this stuff, the Jewish community, especially within certain denominations, but even more broadly than that has been really, really good at a certain kind of cultural reproduction. And I talk in the piece about Certain kind of trauma reenactments that I was raised with, reenactments of the Holocaust, reenactments of pre-Zionist terrorism and Aliyah uh, done by Zionist fighters, reenactments of wars with Palestinians uh, within Israel, all trying to produce a a fear and in-group response. This has been drilled into us. There's a specific curriculum that is being taught all over the Jewish world. I think it exists in the Orthodox world, but the Orthodox world has religion in a different sense. So their curriculum is slightly different. But certainly in like a secular sense, the Jewish world is really deep in a certain story about Trauma about isolation, uh, about anti-Semitism, and is also very committed to reenacting it. And so, it's very easy for me to imagine a situation where we just did something else, you know, like anything else. There is a curriculum there that we could change. There is a way in which, and I offer the example in the piece of a of a friend of mine, Maya, who created her own group for children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, kind of doing like a kind of peer to peer group therapy. Where she came out on the other side with a very, very different orientation to the world and to non- jews and to and to the Holocaust and how what it means to Jewish identity that feels a lot more integrated and a lot less angry and isolated. And for me, it's like, why can't we do that in our Jewish spaces? It seems there's no reason why we can't. And yet there has never, I have never,, uh, you know, and I've been in the Jewish world a long time and have done every program and everything and nobody has ever offered to help me with my you know intergenerational holocaust trauma in a way that felt constructive or at all in any way whatsoever except directing it towards zionism so that feels very straightforward to me that there are there are resources going in one direction and they could go in another direction and and there's curriculum going in one direction and it could go in another direction i think in in other communities i'm not in those communities enough to understand how that kind of healing could work and what kinds of infrastructures could be repurposed in order to facilitate that.
0: But you've uh, been around the left.
2: That's true. I mean, look, I, I think this is a really, really hard question. Again, part of what I was thinking about when I was writing this is like, should I get more deeply into thinking about how grievance looks on the left different than what grief might look like. And it almost seemed like, is there like some kind of checklist, like in terms of thinking through when it makes sense to call someone out on the internet and when it makes sense to reach out personally, when it makes sense to have a conversation with people and not seek recourse for something, because there's a lot of times that things come out online in particular, but I think not just online, that actually there's no recourse for that thing. Sometimes it's very direct. And it's sort of like, I spoke to this person, I've made this complaint several times, nobody's ever taken this seriously, I'm taking this public, you know, and I think that like, these kinds of things are very, very important. But there's also a question of what kinds of things are not worth it? What kinds of things are the kinds of things that we process privately? for the sake of not because like, they're not important, or because like, they don't real reflect real harm, but because like, we're not likely to receive something that that is going to ease that harm from this process. You know, like, I've heard people talking about online, and I I don't know how I feel about this. I'm not like, I'm not passing a judgment one way or the other. But some people are saying, like, calling out abusers online, doesn't actually deliver for the victim what they want out of that experience. And like, is there a better way of of doing that or a way that can help the person move forward and help get accountability without creating a kind of public process around it? I mean, I've also in this answer right now focused on the difference between public and private. I think that that's part of it and not the only part of it, of course. I haven't given that part of things as much thought. And I thought that it would be like way beyond the scope of of this piece. But I am very interested and would love to hear from people about what the difference between grief and grievance looks like in their movements. And I I guess I just wanted to throw that on the table, that there is a difference and that we can explore that difference in thinking through how we get accountability, how we get more just movement spaces without destroying those movement spaces. I mean, I also think that something that I do get at in the piece is thinking about stakes and how we understand certain harms relative to the stakes. Again, it's not to say that we push things under the rug. It's just to say that we often see a kind of falling apart related to things that are not on the level of what we're facing. And how do we draw these distinctions without making oppressed people wait and without making them suffer more within spaces that are supposed to be allied to them? But how do we, you know, Understand what can actually be fully addressed and addressed in a way that is going to to satisfy that need before more urgent and bigger concerns. I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it.
0: Well, you end the piece by uh, saying that the, the threat of fascism really, like, very palpable. Not just the way the left is thrown around that word. Uh, Sometimes exaggeratedly in the past, but you no, know, it really feels real. And uh, we need um, a collective power, rather than attachment to proprietary pain. It might be that we should think about the things that would promote solidarity, rather than um, its opposite. Absolutely,
2: absolutely. I mean, I think there's definitely a sense that that we need to. You're talking about purity politics. I mean, like I think that Taiwo really smartly points out that all politics is coalitional politics. All politics is about reaching across difference. We, we cannot afford, I mean, even as it relates to liberals, frankly, I mean, like, I don't think that, I mean, obviously, like I don't have any illusions about how the broader liberal apparatus is going to, you know, I don't think they're going to completely fight fascism with us, but we do have to give them an opportunity to try. I mean, like we can't do it without them. And so we need to find a way to talk to them in a language that makes sense. Um, to them as well as to us. And, and I think that is actually possible, but it requires caring about that. It requires caring about wanting to do that work more than we care about a certain kind of ego identification. And I think that's what's helpful about the psychoanalytic frame here is because it gets to the psychology of, of why we might be attached to certain ways of, of communicating, even to the detriment of, of building the things that we want to build because we've wrapped our identities in those things. All strong political movements require a kind of relinquishing of of the ego on some level in order to make them work and and a kind of willingness to become part of a larger we. And that is really hard work and is going to be very uncomfortable. And it doesn't mean that we abandon the questions of like, when have we gone too far? When are we? And it also doesn't mean that we compromise on all of our morals, but it means that we start from a place of wanting to actually reach out and wanting to broaden that conception of we.
0: That was Arielle Angel, editor of Jewish Currents. Her piece, Beyond Grievance, is on the magazine's website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this. Some more from that reissue of Stereolabs Lo-Fi. This the title track. Till next week. Bye.